I am Haley. And I'm Emma. And welcome to This Shakespeare is Gay, a podcast that goes play by play to prove that every Shakespeare play is a little bit gay. This week, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Can I confess my feeling about A Midsummer Night's Dream? Just right out the gate. Yes. Yeah. Well, I because I think it's going to, I'm afraid it's going to inform the spirit of this week's episode, which is that I feel no audience member of A Midsummer is ever having as much fun as the actors are having. <laughs> That's fair. I've definitely seen productions where that is true. Yeah. And I feel I've been in productions where that was also true. <laughs> have you who have you played in a midsummer night's dream oh a lot of a lot of parts it was one of so i oh my gosh so back in the day when i was an actor i worked uh with a company that among other things uh you'd play like multiple roles in the same play over the course of the season because it was like unrehearsed so in order to like maintain the spontaneity you wanted to like be able to like mix up roles that people weren't like falling into set patterns but you could also actually do a run of a show over a summer um, and we did Midsummer every year on Midsummer, so it was like the one show everyone had been in five hundred times. So I played Got it. Puck, Hermia, Lysander, all of the mechanicals, all of the fairies, <laughs> <laughs> like every everything you could possibly be. There are a lot of fun spots. There, there are, are. spots. Mm-hmm. Never Oberon or Titania, though. I'm not tall enough. No. Interesting. Yeah, that was gonna say. <laughs> I was gonna say you could have a really small Titania. <laughs> yeah, I think you could. Be funny. Yeah. Um, well, I guess in a similar spirit of disclosure, I should also say that um, this is the play that I have directed to full production most recently. Um, mm. So this, she's she's real fresh in my mind because I did it. Um, I did it at a theater in Hartford, Connecticut last summer. And uh, consequently, as one does when you're getting ready to direct a play, I carried it around in my head for many months leading up <laughs> to the process. So I worked on it for, you know, nine months of last year or something like that. And so, you know, I probably saw it like 30 to 40 times <laughs> last summer. Yeah. Amazing. Well, and hopefully you, our listeners, are also feeling a sense of security and comfort in returning to a familiar play after several weeks in the wilderness of the histories. <laughs> yeah, I was really looking back and we really, we felt like we did owe you a, we owed people a blockbuster after the 2022 run so far of Two Gentlemen, Love Slavers Lost, all three Henry Sixes. And then Merry Wives of Windsor. <laughs> <laughs> we're good at this, at programming. Yeah, really good. I mean, really, we, really good. We're going to have to do them all eventually. So we are. And here we are with A Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I can summarize it. I suspect most yeah. people are familiar with this play, but it uh, is the sort <laughs> of three, two to three kind of parallel stories. One of them involves two different sets of lovers who find themselves in a magical wood um, because, you know, there's unrequited love. You know, Hermia and Lysander run off to get married. Helena follows them because, well, no, Demetrius follows them because he wants to marry Hermia. Helena follows Demetrius because she's Mm -hmm. in love with him. In the woods, Mm -hmm. they get overseen by the king of the fairies, Oberon, who decides to meddle because he's already meddling by causing his ex-wife, uh, <laughs> Titania, <laughs> to fall in love with some 
crazy monster in order to embarrass her. And he's like, well, while I'm at it, I'll make sure that these mortals fall in love with one another too. His very famous henchman Puck sees to that badly. Chaos mm-hmm. ensues. Titania falls in love with a actor who has come to the woods to rehearse and again to cause chaos puck has caused him to have a donkey's head and (laughs) they go sleep in a bower for a while and then in the end everybody emerges from the woods has their right love rightly restored and the actors put on an absurd play within a play and everyone has a nice time yeah everyone has a nice time the end that's he so funny. He's a character also. Oh yeah. That's also a person. Yeah. The, um, the hear it summarized back, the <laughs> giving gives him a donkey's head. It's just really, it just hits. It just hits every time. I'm just like, oh yeah, that happens. Yep. Frustratingly difficult to make look good for such an iconic feature of a Shakespeare play. Yes, it can be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, whatever whatever kind of mask puppetry madness goes down it's it's a very it's a high impact moment for sure yeah um mm-hmm. and so it's a play that is you know like many of the comedies fundamentally pretty heterosexual on the surface but mm-hmm. i think we're going to we're going to find we're going to find some things i guess it's worth noting that like there was a during the pandemic a really high profile production that explicitly tried to queer the story produced by uh well it was produced by the bridge theater but then like shown through nt live um and we'll probably talk about that too because we both watched that oh oh we'll talk about it (laughs) (laughs) amazing yeah Mm. but shall we dive right in let's dive right into act one great um so yeah i think you know we begin with it's interesting um I always really remember like one of the first things that I was kind of like taught about Shakespeare when I went to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival with my high school class as a freshman um, Mm. was the idea that like in one of like pre-show talks that like Shakespeare uh, likes to begin his comedies as tragedies. And the one that came up in the context of was we were seeing as you like it, but like it's true of Midsummer too. The first act until the kind of, love chaos it starts to ensue Mm -hmm. is like the setup is like Theseus and Hippolyta are getting married because she lost a war to him and is like some kind of prisoner of war yep um and then Hermia's dad like drags her in front of like the duke to be like if she won't marry the guy I want her to put her to death please yeah and that's like the stakes going in Yes, that's the stakes going in. And it all, it all, um, the setup of that uh, all unfurls over the course of one quite long scene. And it's really interesting because it's, it's difficult tonally and pace wise, even when you're actually doing it to, to, it's a tricky one because it's like, in some way you have to hint at the rest of the play to come like artistically so that people don't sort of feel like they're in the wrong play. But at the same time, it's the same thing as, as you like it, where like the opportunity as a director or like a creative team is that you're in one world, which is really constricting and really binding and really like terrifying for the first 20 minutes. And then you go into the woods and the entire scope of the play changes. 
And the tone management of what you do with Midsummer before you go into the woods is really interesting. And we've all seen, you know, many productions make wildly different choices that the bridge production that you referenced, um, as if I recall, put, put it in some sort of like, there was a, it was like a handmade still kind of utopia and dystopia energy. Yeah. Yeah, Dystopia. And, um, Hippolyta was wheeled in like in a cage. Um, so that started, I mean, and it certainly set up a very distinct expectation. And I think, you know, gestured towards the thing that is really present and like relevant to our purposes at the beginning of the play, which Mm. is like the really dysfunctional state of heterosexuality. Yeah, 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 exactly. And um, it's an interesting, the stakes with, I was just thinking about how it is the same structure as As You Like It in terms of like, there is a threat to one of the main character's lives explicitly made by a male family member. And then whereas in As You Like It, it's Rosalind and Celia who are like, okay, fuck that. Let's go into the woods and make our own way. In Midsummer, it's a heterosexual couple. It's Lysander and Hermia. And it's Lysander who sort of turns to the threatened person, which in this case is Hermia, and goes, fuck that, we'll make our own way. Let's run away together. And so it's interesting because that is a very... um, it is like these two straight kids who love each other want to get married and they're going to run into the woods in order to kind of get somewhere where they can stay with a relative of his and find a way to like bust out and go make a life together. And then the complicating factor in Midsummer is Hermia's childhood friend, Helena, is... The tangle is that her sexual jealousy over Demetrius, who it's like heavily implied, has had a past relationship with Helena, like something went down between them, some kind of flirtation or some kind of whatever. People kind of shade it with varying degrees of gravity, but some kind of something, you know, um, went down between Demetrius and Helena before he sort of um, fixated on Hermia for whatever his reasons are. And so... Helena's decision to follow Hermia and Lysander into the woods is not like, because I think we're going to talk about in a second, the sort of like the, the shared queer childhood thing of the way that Hermia and Helena grew up together is super similar textually to the way Rosalind and Celia talk about their childhood. But instead of the girls supporting each other in their flight, like in As You Like It, what happens here is like really early on, it's a betrayal of Hermia's confidence of, you know, for her own ends. Helena is like, well, she just told me this secret that she's going to run away into the woods with her boyfriend. And I wish them no ill, but in order to get mine, I'm going to need to divulge the secret. And that's kind of how it all begins to go haywire. So right away, it's like a slightly different setup. Yeah. But since you mentioned it, let's talk about it. Um, Yeah. yeah, We get this language when Helena and Hermia are talking about something that we've, as you said, discussed in previous episodes, a thing that recurs a lot in Shakespeare is this image of a sort of like idyllic queer childhood, queered childhood, especially between two female characters where two women sort of reminisce about the kind of homosocial intimacy that we get to kind of see in action more frequently with male characters. Um, And, you know, it's, uh, I think, particularly kind of uh, sensual, for Hermia and Helena versus mm. Rosalind and Celia, there's a lot more language about like, well, we would go into the woods and like lay on the ground together. And um, 
sort of really, yeah. really, I that thing you said before of kind of like how you sort of foreshadow what the play will become, like kind of setting up the intimate and erotic potential yes. of the forest before we've even yes. gotten there. Yes, exactly. Exactly. The contrast is like, so in As You Like It, it's like, you know, we as Juno Swans went coupled and inseparable, all of that. In Midsummer, we get the language about, um, you know, about two later, Helena will have the language when she reproaches Hermia, you know, for, for, um, being mean to her, she'll have the language about, you know, two cherries on one stem. But in, in the first scene, Hermia says, the way she describes the plan to Helena is she says, and in the wood where often you and I upon faint primrose beds were wont to lie emptying our bosoms of their counsel sweet, there my Lysander and myself shall meet. Yeah. And it's, genu- it's that thing of like, you know, that place where we used to do all of that, like cuddling and secret sharing in the woods. I'm going to take my boyfriend there. Yeah. I mean, it really, I mean, it, 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 yeah, it's just the one to one swap. It's exactly the transference that happens in like two gentlemen of Verona of like before exactly. I did these things with my same sex friends and now exactly. I'm a grown up and I'm doing it uh, with my, you know, with my partner. Sex friend. Yeah, and I think, like, you know, yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think kind of, part of the I mean it's a feature of the betrayal right it's the idea mm-hmm. that like mm-hmm. Helena is being prevented from moving forward into that same phase of life because Demetrius is being a dick right exactly exactly and the, something that we uh because the shape of that first scene um once we get rid of the Demetrius comes in as part of the admin between Aegeus Hermia's father and Theseus and Hippolyta you know he's there but with Hermia's dad in the behest of like this is how we want to broker this marriage like we've talked about before of men brokering alliances with other men essentially and which he they and actually joke about <laughs> because when yes when, yes they do when uh yeah Demetrius and Lysander are sort of both being like I'm just as good as each other like there's no reason for you to choose Demetrius over me and uh Demetrius says yes. something along the lines of like her father likes me better and Lysander says do you marry him yes yes he says you have her father's love do you marry him it's so good it's so good and also like lysander in that same scene in that kind of public space is the one that sort of outs uh demetrius's past with helena before helena even enters the play you know in that same scene when it's kind of like you know demetrius hasn't said much yet lysander has the text you know of um uh demetrius made love to neater's daughter helena and that can kind of you know it's an interesting the competition between the boys is set up there and then it gets really kind of hot in that moment of, uh, do you bury him? But yeah, um, but I think more than just between the two of them, it's, it's an expression of this idea that we've talked about again in the past of like, when you have two men sort of brokering a marriage as a gesture of their esteem for one another, which came up a lot last other. It's yeah. It's a funny joke, but it is also Lysander kind of poking directly at that energy as well. Yes. Yes, exactly. And so what's interesting about it is that the the court sort of scene of it dissolves into just this plan between the two lovers, Hermia and Lysander, where they decide to run away. And then into that comes Helena as the kind of point of this triangle. And then it becomes a three-way scene for a minute, which has this really interesting balance of like, Hermia sort of doesn't know who to talk to because Lysander and Helena don't really have a relationship. And so it is genuinely like, it's this tug of war between like 
Helena comes in like crying about Demetrius and like wanting help and wanting to like have some time with her friend in order to kind of get to the bottom of it. And instead Hermia's like, I have some great news. I'm replacing you with my boyfriend. Yeah, it's, I do. I really feel like Hermia is an under, under explored. Like I think that Helena gets like all the attention in this play because she has all the big speeches Mm -hmm. and it's a bigger role. But I do think that there's like kind of a lot more nuance and texture to Hermia's position in the play than she kind of gets credit for. And part of it is that she is the character who embodies this, like begins as a tragedy and moves into a comedy energy. Like her scene, her language and her scene where she's kind of defending herself to Theseus is really great. I think that her scene, her love scene with Lysander right after is like incredibly beautiful. It's great. Um, And then she gets to kind of go and be like a ridiculous clown in the woods, like everyone Mm -hmm. else. But exactly this tension that you're describing, I, I think there's just like a lot more to how Hermia's kind of experience of this transition is being centered than like, I kind of tend to see Mm -hmm. brought out in performance Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I don't know why that is really well yeah I mean I think I think you landed on it I think it's because as always with Shakespeare I feel like we've said a version of this a lot it's like you have to really embrace the the tonal shifts as they're written and not try to get away from them or you'll wrong foot the play. And I think people are resistant to the tonal shift embodied by Hermia, exactly as you were saying, because we know what the play is going to become and it's hard to square what it starts as with what it's going to become, but actually it's essential. Right. So I guess, yeah, in production, then you end up undercutting her one way or the other, either by saying, we're not going to take your pathos seriously or by saying, actually, you're going to be the not very funny character who is like having a bad time. Yeah. Yeah. And I know just while we're on it for a second, I know you and I have talked about this before because um, we wrote about it together in your Shakespeare newsletter last year. Yes. um, (laughs) About the fact that um, this is a (laughs) multi-pronged Shakespeare nerd energy. I would, Um, I would shout it out, but I haven't, it's on hiatus right now, but it's (laughs) shakespeare.substack.com if you're interested. It's a very good newsletter. Um, And we we collabed on the Hermia one because I was working on it at the time and um, I was finding it difficult to cast for this specific reason, because she has to embody, she has to embody a more subtle variation of the tone than any of the other characters. And it starts in this particular way, like we're saying, but also where it goes, she does become a clown, but in a different way than the other three, because when the other three get kind of driven mad by desire, either natural or magical, Hermia has to sort of become the butt of the, the sort of the odd one out and the kind of butt of the joke because somebody does. And that's a harder (laughs) place to naturally, um, that's a harder place to stay funny. Yeah. You know, and also maintain the emotional gravity. So like that's as that's just extra stuff on top of the potential gayness of it. But like the thing that we're really getting into is like we've talked a lot with boys. I really do keep thinking about two gentlemen of Verona about the kind of um, negotiation of the transition between childhood and adulthood, basically, and how for men it gets explored over and over in Shakespeare about sort of how you cross that line is you negotiate this transference from your same sex best friends to your, you know, uh, usually (laughs) to your female lover. But in this case, Helena comes into the play um, 
Helena sort of comes into the play obsessed with Demetrius already and like she has a slightly different journey but like Hermia is the one who is in that first scene like literally set up between these two people kind of my past and my future Helena the person I used to lie around in the woods with Lysander the person I'm now going to go lie around in the woods with and she's the body that is making the journey between one to the other yeah and she also gets offered a middle ground as well which Mm -hmm. is to become a nun Yes, she does. Um, Which she is like, yes, I would rather do that than marry Demetrius. So I don't care. I mean, she literally says like, I am happy to be a virgin forever. I would rather do that than marry a man I don't love and by implication sleep with a guy I don't want to sleep with. Um, Which, yeah, yeah, I hadn't quite put that Mm -hmm. together before, but it is just like this other, uh, I mean, it's, you know, another kind of same sex community. I don't think Shakespeare gets kind of as titillated by the idea of nuns as many writers of the period do. Um, But it is sort of floating there of like, or you kind Um, of, because it is different, because it's like her again, like there is something really sensual in the descriptions of her relationship with Helena. So it doesn't feel like a kind of choosing that. It's like another kind Mm -hmm. of option. A third thing. A third thing that involves like a community of women, but is not kind of a queer feeling community of women as much as a sort of punitive one. Yeah. And and a kind of like a sexless sort of. Yeah. 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 They, they use um, the, the, (laughs) there are so many usages of the word uh references to the moon in this play it's actually insane when you slow down and count them and the the line about the nuns that always really rings in my head is um is uh chanting chanting hymns to the cold fruitless moon yeah very you know we've got our diana imagery yeah vestal virgin stuff but yeah, yeah i mean i think that it's really um telling i guess like not to i think it's hard not to kind of think about uh contemporary performance with this play because it is one that kind of gets queered a lot but like i pretty much never see it happening via hermia who i think as we're arguing is the character who really explicitly contains that energy yeah 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 i think it's really interesting i mean should we should we introduce the bad versions of that that we've seen recently or should we hold <laughs> off on them um we can we can let's hold off because i don't think there's okay. anything to say about it here at the beginning except for that like this scene to me is yeah i mean just as we've said there's just like a really queer yeah. vibe happening mm-hmm. with our sweet bisexual hermia mm-hmm. um yeah yeah there is and 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 I think if you hit it that way, residually, you get in you get a uh, you get an echo of it in Helena as well. Because something I kind of learned through doing it was that if you find if you do sort of explicitly stage Helena's disappointment in that scene of like she comes in for intimacy with Hermia. Hermia is no longer available for that. She's developing yeah. intimacy with Lysander. So what happens is she then leaves. And the reason that Helena then turns to the audience to talk about her problems is that she doesn't have a best friend anymore. So we become her queer best friend. Yeah. You know, and Hel- Helena gets all the direct address because her friend abandons her in the first scene. So then she gets to turn out and be like, I'm sad. No one will hang out with me. Yeah. And like, I'm in love with this boy, but also like, but also now Hermia's ignoring me. And it does like, I think that there is a way because traditionally, or maybe most conventionally, the way that people frame Helena's jealousy of Hermia is just about the fact that Demetrius likes Hermia 
and left Helena in some respect for her. I mean, Helena's text is, you know, ere he looked on Hermia's eye and he hailed down oaths that he was only mine. Like they were like promised in some, you know, they had some kind of agreement with each other, some kind of past. And then he threw her over for Hermia. And so of course people focus on the disappointed heterosexual desire, but I think right side by side with it in Helena is like the reason that she chooses to betray Hermia in the first scene and go chase them into the woods, tell Demetrius where they're going is like, yes, Demetrius likes Hermia and not her, but also Hermia chose her boyfriend and not Helena and she's abandoning her. And cause like the end of the Hermia Lysander Helena scene is like by forever, basically like we're running away and never coming back. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, and I think as well, the kind of the language that um, Helena uses to express her jealousy is something else that we've talked about before. It's um, you know, mm. she has this stuff about like, teach me how you look, like, what do you, how can I be more like you? And this, these sort of like obsessive comparisons between her and Hermia's looks, which like partly kind of give way to the lots of language about the comparison between their heights and their different colorings in the later scenes. But yeah. really the kind of conclusion she draws at the beginning is like, we don't look very different. And now that we're like talking about this, it's just really reminding me of this language of kind of sameness and shared yeah. identity that we've talked about yeah. in the past. The idea that like, yeah. again, this twinned cherries, we used to be the same plant yeah. on the same On spot. one stem. Yeah. yeah. And now somehow we're different. Somehow you have an attractiveness, a power. A I don't some, have. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And like, how can I have that? How can I be you again? Right, exactly. And it, it really is making me feel like the girl, it, I hadn't thought about it explicitly this way, but it really feels like the girl version of the two gents thing to me, of the kind mm. of thing of like, I, I, we're both, in order to get what he has, I have to divest myself, but also become him. It's yeah. that, it's the same thing. It's like Helena is, um, uh, what's his face? But yeah, I mean, it's the same <laughs> dynamic. Prettiest. Which does you know. then yeah. happen, but yeah. we'll get to that. And maybe- uh-huh we can move um, forward. Also in this act, yes. we meet the mechanicals who are putting on the play. Um, yes. we'll, we'll return to them. We'll talk about uh, them later. <laughs> but yeah, so then moving into act two, we meet our other kind of power couple, which mm-hmm. is um, the fairy king and queen, Oberon and Titania, <laughs> who, are having, who are having marital problems. And I think before we get in maybe to like what that says about the kind of state of heterosexuality in this world, to keep mm. building on this kind of like lesbian um, yeah. or kind of bisexual women love women, whatever, uh, energies mm-hmm. of this play, the conflict that Oberon and Titania are having is Titania has a changeling who she got yeah. from a votress of her order, like a woman who worshipped her as a, because it's this weird kind of fairy slash goddess energy. Um, and then that woman yes. died and she's like, you know, taken in the child and it's hers. And she's very explicit that like, that that is what this child represents to her is her relationship with this woman and yes another really lovingly and intimately described past now gone forever because the woman is dead relationship and I just was like so struck thinking about it this time thinking about it through this lens like the extent to which it is their child that they had together yes and Oberon's mad because like the ladies went and had a baby without him and Mm -hmm. that he has no part in having Mm -hmm. created this child. So he has Mm -hmm. to take it. 
Exactly. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinatingly explicit when you really, and you know, it's funny because it's one of those conflicts that, um, the effects matter in the play, but the antecedents don't don't really. And so directors often kind of ride right past it. But genuinely, like it's a custody battle. Like what we're walking into is a custody battle. And the baby is Titania's with another woman. The text is just to, to put it in the table. Um, Oberon is uh, being a huge dick. And also this is like, this is to skip over Titania's uh, incredible forgeries of jealousy speech, which is basically just like our hate, our, our, our we'll get to that. Causing, we'll get to that. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. But it's, you know, the, our, our conflict is causing the climate crisis. But um, in, uh, in this moment, Oberon says, you know, do, but uh, do you amend it? Then it lies in you. Why should Titania cross her Oberon? I do, but beg a little changeling boy to be my henchman. And Titania's text says, set your heart at rest. The fairy land buys not the child of me. His mother was a votress of my order. And then she goes on to like deliver this gorgeous sort of description of, in a way, like the shared pregnancy. She says, you know, um, when we have laughed to see the sails conceive and grow big bellied on the wanton wind, which she with pretty and with swimming gait following her, her womb then rich with my young squire would imitate and sail upon the land to fetch me trifles and return again as from a voyage rich with merchandise. But she being mortal of that boy did die. And for her sake, do I rear up her boy? And for her sake, I will not part with him. And that is like very explicit language. Yeah, I mean, and like, I get why people lose track of it because Oberon uh-huh. immediately turns the entire thing into being about himself and is of like, course. you know, this is about her relationship with Theseus, like, which we never see anything of, but they talk about and like makes it into this like other, he kind of sublimates the sexual jealousy into like, I'm going to make her be in love with another man. But yes. fundamentally at the beginning, it's about her having conceived and now be raising a child with another woman. 100%. A hundred percent. And this is why, I mean, like what he decides to do about this, because she ends the scene by saying like, go fuck yourself. And then, you know, I mean, like she leaves. What he decides to do is get Puck to, you know, torment her in some kind of way. And what they end up doing, which we all know is, you know, popping a donkey's head on bottom because he's the guy who's there at the time and having her, you know, lose lose her effing mind for about 24 hours and fall in love with this donkey creature as a as a high jinxy form of sexual revenge yeah and i think that it connects the <laughs> to go back to what you were saying about the language that they use when they kind of are introduced and are describing the nature of like their conflict which is cosmic because they yeah. rule the forest is like we're disrupting the seasons, we're disrupting the crops. Like our lack of harmony is undoing the natural order. And like the, for Titania to fall in love with a donkey man is a continuation of that. It's like, they can't get at the solution to the problem because their sort of relationship is so cosmically messed up at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. But I think you're really right that what happens is, uh, it, what it is, is a jealousy over a shared child with a woman. And what Oberon does is sublimate that into uh, a jealousy allegedly about another man and then punishes her also with another man. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's, it, he, he makes it 
a masculine tinted sexual beef, but what it really is, is a heavily feminine tinted sexual beef. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting that he doesn't, that he can't, he doesn't deal with it. He just, uh, you know, makes her fall in love with the donkey and then swipes the child. And in a way, that's kind of what happens with Helena and Hermia as well, is something that is, and like, I think as we will discuss and we'll see in act three, a fight that is about their relationship Mm -hmm. through Puck and Oberon's meddling gets turned into a fight about these two men that it's really not about. That's right. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yes, yes. It's sort of like Oberon is like desperately trying to like Uh slot everyone back into their like heterosexual places and he'll succeed by the end. But Mm -hmm. like, it's all too broken here at the beginning to fit together and work Uh the way he's trying to make it. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And because the thing is like, to Tanya's point at the beginning here is like, oh yeah, our conflict, which is cosmic, is completely undoing the natural world. And all that Oberon needs to do, uh, you know, if he was more of a woke fairy king, all that <laughs> Oberon needs to do is, um, is apologize. <laughs> like what Oberon needs to do is say like, okay, I understand, keep the baby. <laughs> like, it's literally... Like, like, I respect, and also, like, she's, I think it's really interesting, because, again, not something I would have uh, put on it, but have, had I not just worked on it with an actor, like, the the shade that the actor found when we were talking about this weird queer energy of this dead woman and this child is, like, she's in grief, like, she's not sharing, you know, I, I have, I have forsworn his bed and company is, like, yes, he's being a tool about it, but also, like, she's grieving a dead lover like she's grieving like she's grieving an intimacy that is gone yeah yeah Yeah. which I think you know when productions decide to have a kid it's a kid so you sort of get some distance from the recent from the death yeah right of course um no I think that's I think that's a really good point and Mm. just to say again that like that is the mode in which this kind of lesbian space conventionally exists in Shakespeare is that like it is lost Mm -hmm. it is past either sometimes because of you know the sort of Hermia and Helena like we've moved into another phase of our lives but equally often I mean we'll talk about it when we finally do Two Noble Kinsmen um because the other woman is dead yeah and it's just something that uh can't exist in a present tense for Shakespeare quite but it's so Mm -hmm. there Mm-hmm. 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 yeah you get it in glimpses so often but but yeah it's sort of the troubled backstory to where we actually begin in this play which is that the heterosexuality is out of joint like the heterosexuality is out of harmony so everybody's heterosexuality is out of harmony and so the whole natural world in the kind of you know cosmic masculine feminine balance that you know blah 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 the whole natural world is out of joint so what the play should be is a project of restoring that so that everybody can get on with the future Mm -hmm. and eventually that's what it becomes but in the interim because of a non-woke fairy king's sexual jealousy it doesn't become a project of restoration it becomes a project of further fuckery (laughs) you know like more chaos. before we have to that the whole rule with all kind of like 
tonal thematic rules with with um midsummer i feel like is that it has to get it has to get worse before it gets better so you just have to slide down into the chaos and then eventually it'll climb back up surely part of the reason it goes so bad is because like Oberon delegates to a sexless gremlin child who has neither any understanding of nor stake in any of these concepts. Yep. Um, so that's, yeah. that's a key element as well. It's not just like Oberon yeah. being insufficiently woke. It's that like, well, you <laughs> you gave this job to someone who doesn't know what sex is. Yeah, that's such a great point. We should probably talk about Puck for a second. Yeah, we probably should. Just speaking of things that in performance practice are often somehow queered. Yeah. You know, just because like it's tempting and easy, of course, to 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 think of Puck as some kind of, um, you know, sexually anarchic, like some kind of queered spirit that is then like, you know, what's fun? Chaos. But I think you're actually closer to the truth with the thing of like the problem is that the chaos is accidental because what Puck is, is an energy that is without that is without sex or like without um you know, like, yeah, that is an ageless gremlin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's 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 a version of the clown figures, which, except uh-huh. for Touchstone, are also is sexless. Like, sexless, yeah, it's a it's a a separate kind of category. And I think mm-hmm. you know, there's a long production history of trying to capture mm-hmm. something of the I don't even know Fae spirit of Puck through uh-huh. gender. It was played by women throughout like the 19th century, and then like only men Mm. and now it's kind of either or and like now it'll be sort of drag Mm -hmm. looks and non-binary actors Mm -hmm. and like I think there's something a little problematic about Mm. the default to like inhuman Mm -hmm. a queer person that uh kind of manifests sometimes through that casting it's the same thing of like oh 100 percent. and you know I mean I've heard this from actors a hundred times I also do a lot of um uh, freelance monologue coaching and stuff like that and the trans and non-binary actors that I've worked with and that I know it's like a joke that you know the what they get called in for all the time is it's like it's puck and aerial and you know I mean it's the it's literally the inhuman sexless you know sprite people and it's just sort of like well I get it but damn you know it's just every (laughs) non-binary actor ever is being seen for those two roles you know and also like well I mean I guess I mean no why if if your argument is like the fairies should be outside of human sexuality and gender then why would Oberon and Shatania not also be non-binary right right but really what it's getting into is I think it's getting at the sense of like oh we want something that is sexually weird like it's something that is outside the norm of all these other kind of couples and so of course people are like oh so they'll be queer that's that's weird and also we'll make it non-threatening and sexless Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. It's that what people want to reach toward is like, what is some kind of energy that breaks all the rules? And this is fundamentally a comedy about crisscrossed romantic desire. And so like, what is a kind of bomb you can place in the middle of that that will completely redirect everything in a chaotic way? That's a really good way of putting it and maybe a more generous one. Because I think it's exactly, I mean, it's the same, you know, in our other podcast, we talked about the kind of pleasure of the queer Disney villain. The idea of like yes. dropping the gay chaos bomb into the heterosexual play yes. to make it break is very fun. Um, yeah. But certainly has happened so many times at this point. Maybe there's mm. another way to achieve that effect. But I do think that's mm. exactly what Puck is there to do and exactly mm. what comes of Puck's, mm. I mean, yeah, for lack of a better word, like sexlessness, um, out yeah. complete separation from the 
mm-hmm. uh, homo and heterosexual entanglements of all the other characters. Yes. Yeah, completely. Cause that's, what's so interesting. I think you really sort of hit the nail on the head at the beginning of like, what's interesting, what Puck's chaos actually derives from is that he personally, uh, has a lack of understanding like it's like it's not it's not even like intentionally driven chaos it's it's the chaos of utter blankness when it comes to gender and sexuality like it's the chaos of literally not knowing what the rules are so it doesn't matter you know like he's literally just like oh I'll turn this guy into a donkey and then he's like oh I think that's a human it's probably the right one they're all the same yeah. And also, sorry, not to like build off my own point like a dick, but no, I love it. <laughs> the thing about making Puck queer and using queerness as the thing outside is that it yeah. says then that queerness is outside the sexual yes. politics of this world, which as yes. we've just been discussing, it is very much not. That is one of the modes That's of sexuality right. that is already at play. That's right. That's exactly right. It's just the thing of like the, the four people in question come into the woods with long entangled histories of intimacies and betrayals and desires amongst each other. And especially I think Hermia is kind of at the center of all of that. But yeah, you're exactly right. It's that queerness shouldn't be something weird that happens to them it's already uh, an ingredient in the entanglement and then a different kind of chaos unleashes hell, like unleashes what I think what it should be is that it should feel like the power of whatever the magic is, however you kind of source that in production, the power of what the woods are sets loose all the electrical currents that are already in the bundle of people. It's a sort of unstoppage of, of their, um, impulses you know what I mean yeah so maybe let's move into act three where kind of the shit hits the fan and all of that happens (laughs) um and we get I mean like one of the longest scenes in the play where yeah Puck mistakenly makes Demetrius and Lysander both fall in love with Hermia I mean both no both fall in love with Helena then Hermia's right. like, Lysander, why don't you love me anymore? And then there's just like a long, long, very funny, if it's done well, fight about this topic, which as we've been alluding to, if you really like, again, commit to the tonal variation yeah. can be quite kind of sincere and serious on yeah. in moments in for moments. the two women yes, despite absolutely. being completely ridiculous for the boys all the time and also for the two of them devolving into absurd insults about height and yeah. you know being a yeah. puppet um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah yeah so like uh, I don't know I like I don't even know where to like start with this I kind with of want to fight yeah mm-hmm. I kind of want to start with like some of these productions we've been alluding to in the ways yes people try to make this energy explode in performance. Yeah, go, go. So I have a couple thoughts. My first is that I cannot remember the last time I saw a production of Midsummer Night's Dream that did not involve the lovers gradually stripping down to their underwear over the course of act two and three. And Just then they usually that I didn't do it and I want my medal from I, you. you for that. <laughs> I I I'm gonna send you a prize in the mail. Thank you. Thank you. Um I'm really proud of you because you. literally everyone does it every time. It's like is it in the script? You yeah, have right? to strip off your clothes and get muddy. Um nope. and 
I, I don't know. Like, I guess I think, it, I mean, it is, it is very obviously shorthand for, oh, their sexuality is awakening. You can tell because yes. they're in their underwear now, yeah, um, but oh it. my God, <laughs> everyone does it. Um, and then the idea that like the things that were there, the tensions in their relationship kind of get in, exploded and bubble up. Yeah. And when people make that manifest by having various combinations of the same sex lovers kiss or something during yeah. this fight, which yeah. notably happened in the bridge production, which we also need to talk about in terms of other queerings it did. We do. Um, but had Puck sort of watching the fight and then at sudden moments came in and like actively used the magic flower to make like careless whispers start playing in the background as like first to the two boys and then the two girls like stopped the fight, had this moment of like, oh, hey. And then you? like yeah. really sloppy make out. And then he'd like end it and they'd be like, ah, ah, and like back away from one another in horror. And it was just That's like thing. this, um, in a way, the opposite of what you're saying, which is like, it, or rather exactly what you were saying about using Puck to introduce something that you're implying wasn't already present yeah. rather than using Puck and using the heightenedness of this energy to right. maybe allow flashes of something that is already there. Is already there. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, listen, guys, we're going to go, we're going to go real ham on the bridge production. <laughs> I've got to tell you, we were both so mad and it was really interesting because everyone else in the world, like lost their absolute minds and loved it so much and you you saw it in person I did yeah I, before I just, the pandemic before in before before the war um and I saw it um I saw saw the NT live stream and wrote a couple really angry blogs about it um but yeah it, one of the things was that there's a lot going on that that puck also um was very much in the mold of a kind of puck that we've seen 85,000 of, which is like a particular kind of queer man um, doing it exactly that way, which, yeah, you know. As, as he, when I saw it live, as he, because it, it was the bridge, it's like they've got like audience members like standing and like kind of oh, yeah, moving around. All around. Um, and at one point, I don't remember what scene it was, as he sort of like strode past my area of the mm -hmm. audience, he like, I was wearing my purple overalls like he was like oh yeah nice outfit and I was like like out loud like it was that energy yeah. where he would just like say stuff like that to the audience yeah um, which like you know can be fun if if properly funneled and yeah. I will say like as a thing like but more yeah I mean it was I obviously loved having my outfit complimented in front of everybody because it deserved course. it but it was yeah that's the vibe of like his oh, kind yeah. of anarchic off-piste yeah. interactions with what was going on yeah and also very much like um uh, an adult, uh, an adult queer male presence that was very much all of those things and also had a sort of louche, like kind of, I mean, in the bridge production, he was basically in charge of like a dance crew of like glitter lycra wearing, like the fairies were sort of all that, you yeah. know what I mean? So it was like a whole thing, but the, the random in like sort of, infusions of queer desire into the lover's fight were like you were saying exactly that energy of like I'm gonna do something to you real fast and then we'll all revert to heterosexuality in 30 seconds and we'll all laugh at how funny it was that he made the boys kiss for a second you know what I mean and it was just like guess what'll be fun and radical kaboom you know it was like a sort of queer lightning bolt that just happened and then got like 
a gross reaction from the participants and then the fight moved on and it just like cast it in this light for me of like not only not to be taken seriously but like yeah this is a sort of like surprise queerness as a form of gross out comedy and I was just like bro why which I mean not to divert from this too quickly but it's exactly what the entire Oberon and Titania I mean bottom and Titania plot became because they had a man playing Mm -hmm. Tanya and the entire joke of the entire sequence became isn't it hilarious freakish and absurd that these two men could Mm -hmm. like be in a bathtub together yes to the point where and I'll never get over this people being like no I felt like it was queer representation it was great literally when they lift the spell off of Tanya the (laughs) song I can see clearly now the rain has gone played like how do you make it any clearer that you think this was like what does she call it? Like an absurd deformity of mine eye that, yeah, like it yeah. was. And yeah. again, and so the use, the way that the kind of weird, unnecessary queer mm. kissing between the lovers mm. in their fight was, it functioned exactly the same mode of saying the thing that is totally. funny and absurd and broken, that mm-hmm. the chaos that they are causing that needs to be laughed at so that it can be mm-hmm. kind of expelled from the world is the yes. concept of queer desire. Exactly. That's exactly right. So just pa- we got to pause there for a second, because when we expressed uh, distaste for the production and also like I felt like I had to not that anyone, you know, gives that much of a shit about my opinion about anything. But I felt like I had to say something about it at the time because so many people had explicitly like written to me on various forms of social media and then like you've got to watch this production you'll really love this production because people know that I do like a lot of gay stuff in Shakespeare and things like that and I'm interested in queer angles on things and etc and I I had the feeling we have that you're this just describing we have this podcast right and so people were like you watch it you like I'm so curious to hear what you thought and so eventually I had to be like okay and I had the feeling that you just described so perfectly which is like you've just made this the thing to laugh at and the thing that will ultimately have to be expelled from the world rather than an integral sort of vein of human intimacy that has already run throughout all the relationships up to this point and out of it. And the thing is like, and people said at the time when we bitched about it, a lot of people were like, but Nicholas Heiner is a genius and you, and he's gay. And I was like, yeah, I know. Like, I know both <laughs> of those, I know both of those things. I, I have, have, have enjoyed and of course respected Mr. Heitner's work in the past, but, um, but you know, the concept of like a gay man of a certain generation is using, uh, you know, like using queer desire as a way to make people laugh and it isn't actually hitting like it's not it's not good queer representation just because Nicholas Heidner is gay you know what I mean and that's the thing that I felt so frustrated and wanted to push back on with people about is just like that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about how he did it or why (laughs) you know what I mean yeah yeah it was a really it was a really sort of maddening production just because I mean and I think you know we bring it up because it was so well received and was seen yes. all over the world and like yeah. really made a big splash for a minute there and was kind of heralded mm. as doing something really groundbreaking. And I think it was mm. doing something really regressive and um, bad and being a queer person in the audience watching it was mm. deeply uncomfortable and mm. really unpleasant. Mm. Um, and 
in like one of those visceral ways where it's like watching, it, it felt like when I have to watch Merchant of Venice as a Jewish person, just being like, mm-hmm. I don't want to be in the room with the people who are responding to this in this way. Yeah. Um, but I also think that it's really frustrating because as we're talking about, and as you can find in this scene, there is a genuine potential for these mm-hmm. kinds of energies to exist mm-hmm. in this scene. And I don't think it's like, I, I, I'm sure there are good versions of this scene where yeah. Hermia and Helena kiss. I've seen more bad ones where it's like a weird titillating, you know, the boys like are like, ooh, lesbians about it way. And you're like, yep. guys, stop. Cease. But <laughs> well, that's just the thing. You know what it almost reminds me of is like uh, this whole conversation about how it's being, how it, people sometimes use it. It reminds me of conversations we had about um, Hal's first entrance in Henry IV about yeah. how the way, the way that people like to show that someone is dissolute is like, oh, here he comes out of the trapdoor with a girl and a girl and a guy. It's like, <laughs> you know, and this whole thing of like, you know, it's shorthand for uh, shorthand for moral chaos. Yeah. is is like queer energy and I think that actually in this scene the queer energy or like the into the, the broken intimacy between the girls has to I think it's not only not the thing that you're supposed to laugh at I think it's actually the thing that provides the sort of emotional underbelly because you have to be playing it on a couple levels all the time because it does go really broad really cartoon really physical there's a ton of embedded stage direction about like you know I mean like it does get really big and really broad and goofy, but at the same time, there is an underbelly of like of a ruptured intimacy. And I think the actual one that matters is the girls. Yeah. Well, it's a really long scene. You need some variation. It can't just get bigger and bigger and bigger, or you run out of places to go. Yeah. And I think that that's just like such a good point. And so like, I find it interesting because I think on some level, people in trying to keep interpreting the play in this way, and I think it includes things like having them stripped down to their underwear, like being like, there's clearly Mm -hmm. a sexuality here, but I can't (laughs) find it. And it's like, well, the reason you can't find it is because it's not straight. And the like sort of, I think that, yeah, it's it's a response to people intuiting Mm. that energy and yet not recognizing it because it's like not what they're expecting it to be and so they're like well if we put the girls in bustiers then it'll be sexy and that will that will tap into whatever I'm feeling about this that'll fix something somehow (laughs) well it's really funny it's yeah that energy is really funny and of course yeah we've I'm sure we could all rattle off productions that have done the underwear thing and it is the in- increasing ridiculousness is what the scene calls for, but actually, I would make the argument that it's not. Um, it's the, the ways in which it's funny. It's not actually erotic at all. Like the scene is not hot. The scene is yeah. really funny. The scene is funny because what we're laughing at the purest thing that I feel like Shakespeare is actually often making fun of that you can always laugh at in Shakespeare is um, overblown male competition. Yeah. It's like Shakespeare wants you to laugh at the boys being morons at and around each other because that is properly funny. Yeah. And, you know, and like that you can always make fun of because it's like the sort of hilarious sort of preening and posturing of it and the 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 stakes and the scale of the conflict sort of ratcheting up beyond all reason is really funny. And like fundamentally, there is something potentially sort of sexy about the fact that like the backbone of this play is that the idea I think of like what the fairy magic is, is 
you know, what if all of a sudden you completely lost control of your impulses? Like what if a force took over your body so that you couldn't contain, so that you couldn't censor your impulses? And in a way that's both scary and funny, but I don't think it's properly erotic. And I don't know that it's what is happening because like we were saying, the fundamental kind of originary jealousy for Titania Mm -hmm. is her love of another woman. Yes. Oberon is not tapping into her deep sublimated desire to fuck a donkey. That is something that the magic created wholesale and is in fact irrelevant to everything that's going on with her. And similarly, it's like, that's the sort of, shock of what happens with Lysander for Mm -hmm. Hermia is it's like he didn't he doesn't want this like that is not some secretly deeply buried thing within him no and I think there's really you know we can have a conversation about what that means about Demetrius yeah um but you know it's like it's not even that it's like the magic that makes you take off your clothes and get in touch with your body it's like it's the magic that implants a desire you never had before yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's it's a magic that um it's a magic it's a magic that takes away your ability to resist. And what's interesting mm-hmm. kind of destabilizing about it is that even Titania, the fairy queen, as as a professor of mine once memorably said, the queen of erotic nature, even Titania is um subject to the same magic as the mortals like anybody could be over overridden by this particular kind of magic and it is allowed to be funny but it's not um I don't think like you're saying it's not a deep-seated erotic desire that she already had it's in fact on the like on a scale between a practical joke or if you're doing a really dark version of this play that some people do it's it can scale all the way up to like sort of a form of sexual assault by proxy you know what I mean of like you know and I mean there is room for that interpretation I know people have made it because essentially what we're dealing with is like you know I mean a magic date rape drug a magic drug yeah it's a date rape drug and essentially or it's a it's a yeah it's a drug that influences your sexual impulses and like I said takes away your ability to resist so like and like once she's unlike Demetrius once she's out of the spell she's like I would never have done that otherwise yeah 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 she is and she's also like oh why you know I mean yeah it's not which of course just to bring it back to what you were saying about the casting in the bridge production is that what that storyline ends with is this man waking up in this bathtub with this donkey man and going you why because that's the text and so it's like what you've built is a journey not from like a woman uh, a fairy woman having a, you know, having a, an absurd dalliance with this like ridiculous rustic creature, but like, you know, you created a queer moment that then somebody has to wake up out of and say, ew, God, why? Yeah. And sorry, not to just like hammer it home, but they literally <laughs> make it worse because even though they 99% swap, like keep Oberon uh-huh. and Titania's text the same, they oh, swap yeah. it so that it's still male Titania is in love with Hippolyta and female Oberon was in love with Theseus. So they don't even set up that they're already yeah. bisexual. They make no. sure that they are fully straight the whole play except for this. Why? <laughs> Literally why? You would 
solve the problem if you just establish like yeah they both sleep with people of all genders all the time it's, it's fine yeah but no because it's about yeah they saved it to make it the joke and that's yeah. the thing of like and yeah and it echoed it echoed across that production which is why we were both so peeved uh, yeah um but I think as well, like, I just have to be me, harp on it. You yeah. know, I think it comes into a sort of general failure of people to recognize the depth of Shakespeare's female characters, including yep. Titania, but also I think in this instance, mostly Hermia and Hermia, Helena. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the idea that it's like, people really can't figure out how to allow female characters in Shakespeare to both have pathos and be funny. Um, yes. That you yes. can both kind of take their pain seriously, but also make fun of them in the same scene. Yeah. And I just, that's just like a pattern that I notice a lot. I just feel like that is a struggle that contemporary directors really have. And I think it's partly a practical issue of like, these are relatively small roles. So it's like hard to get really good actors to do them because like mm. they're sometimes not that great roles. I mean, I'm sure, you know, not to mm. say the actors aren't good, but you know, if you're less experienced, it's harder to kind of find those nuances without a director to like help you out. And mm -hmm. they're small parts. So there's not always time to do that, but I will also say that this is one, you know, as you were setting it up in the beginning, just speaking from, you know, from my director brain, the, the, this is one of those plays with what I would call kind of a braid structure. There's sort of three strands and there's the lovers and the fairies and the mechanicals. And in most productions I've ever seen, the Tempest is like this as well. I would argue that the Tempest is sort of a worse version even, but it, or more difficult for a director version. But in these braid structures, you almost always see that the director had um, a great idea for one of the threads. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, like you can always tell like, oh, well, they picked it because they wanted to do this thing with it. And oftentimes the lovers are actually the people that get short shrift because what directors tend to have great ideas about are the fairies. Yeah. And because visually that's where you go nuts, of course. And then you forget that actually 25 freaking minutes of the meat of this play is just these kids screaming. Yeah. No, <laughs> it is. Know? a very funny scene that you can almost just wind up and let go. So again, oh, I get why it happens, but no, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, this is, as we were saying, how I feel about measure for measure, people have an idea for the Angelo right. and Isabella scene. There's a whole other play. Um, we've gotten, we've gotten off track. It's uh, just a little, is there anything uh, else you want to add about this kind of lovers fight or shall we move into um, a little bit more about uh, bottom and Titania and maybe the resolution of these two plot lines. Um, all I want to say really looking at the text of it, cause yeah, the whole thing is bananas. It goes and goes and goes, but the, the, the boys run off in peak boy form, chasing each other in this really ridiculous way. So actually at the end of the lover's fight, the people left on stage are Hermia and Helena. Mm -hmm. And I just want to, I mean, just to shout out the choices that the actors who did it with me last summer made, because I thought they were brilliant. What ended up happening is that like, the boys, you know, flipped out, ran away. And then we had this really long moment that the actors found, which I, I was proud of because I felt like it was a really good encapsulation of all of the tone where they were so physically tired and so just like emotionally wrung out from how long this had gone on that they just sort of stood on opposite sides of the stage for a minute, just sort of heaving and quietly crying. <laughs> but in a, in a way that was very funny. Yeah. But their, their final text together is Hermia says to Helena, you mistress all this coil is long of you and then helena starts to sort of stagger away and hermia says no go not back <laughs> and then helena says i will not trust you i 
nor longer stay in your cursed company. Your hands than mine are quicker for a fray. My legs are longer though yeah. to run away and then she leaves. But it's the, it's important and just drives home this thing that we've been saying that like, it comes down to the two of them again at the end, no matter what happens, it comes down to the two of them. Yeah. And I, that's actually like a structural feature I've always found really interesting is that consistently when we kind of move into sequences of where we're sort of have all four lovers passing through, they always end on Hermia. Always. She always, always gets the last word. I mm. mean, with the exception of the first scene where Helena gets her direct address, but mm-hmm. when we're kind of in the four, the four yeah. part kind of quadrille of Absolutely. all of them moving across the stage. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that there's more, again, it's just another kind of hint that like, there's sort of more to that character, more to her place mm-hmm. in this conflict as the only person who is by this point torn between Helena and someone else. Like she's yeah. the glue. Other the boys would just exactly. leave, <laughs> would just leave with Helena. Otherwise she like that, that sense of her being pulled and intention yes. is more important than I think it kind of seems. Agree. And my, well, just building off of that for one more second, it's like the glue is, like you said, it's the, it's where, speaking of unleashing currents that are already there, the emotional backbone of the fight is that suddenly, rather than just Helena feeling like Hermia has sort of betrayed her in some way, suddenly both of the girls feel like the other has betrayed them. And actually the emotional part of the fight is about that. Because the boys are just whirling around, you know, throwing themselves at Helena and in usually when people, especially men, I, I think it has to be said, when people direct this play, the Helena arc through the scene is often about like, you know, oh, I thought I was awkward and ugly and now everybody wants to, like, everybody's all up in my shit and now I'm actually having a good time. Which is literally the opposite of what's happening. Not only is it against the text, it's a terrible idea structurally because again and again, like you said, it comes down to the girls. And so it's like, it's just important to, yeah, lift up over and over. That's not what's happening. The girls are actually trying to swat the boys away like flies the entire time while they figure out what's going on between the two of them. Yeah. 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 No, it's true. This is Hermia cast, a podcast about Hermia. Um, That's right. right. (laughs) So let's, let's, I think we've sort of gone in on the problems with Mm. um, Bottom and Titania and moving into act four, Mm. we kind of, we, we go through a series of resolutions. The lovers, they tucker themselves out like little puppies (laughs) and they fall asleep and Puck finally can repair things. And, (laughs) um, then they kind of, you know, wake and are like, whoa, that was wild. What happened? And then yeah. similarly, Bottom is de-donkeyed. <laughs> Tanya is no longer in love with him. And he also, we get, we get the dream part. Everybody wakes up and was like, was that a dream? Did yeah. I just, did I really go have an orgy in the woods last night? <laughs> um, uh, one of my favorite parts of the like waking up scene is when the lovers are like kind of found on the ground yeah. by Aegeus and Theseus. And they're like, what are they doing here? Someone's like, oh, they just woke up early to observe the rites of May. Yeah. Well, because like Hermia's dad is with yeah. them. And, and it's just like, like yeah, uh... just, you know, went into the woods together and are asleep on the ground in a pile. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, this sort of like washing away of the reality of what happened is Mm. yeah like I just I I kind of don't know what to make of it yeah 
Um, but I, it's, there's some, there's something here. (laughs) Totally, totally, totally. Yeah. I mean, like the, so in order to talk about the resolutions, the resolutions of heterosexuality, as they all, as they all happen, um, we do sort of have to talk about the Demetrius thing. Oh yeah. Him. Um, (laughs) another way, another way this play is queered, uh, when Emma Rice did it at the globe in her like Bollywood version. Helena was Helenus and the sort of concept, Mm -hmm. the implied concept was that Demetrius is rejecting him because he's in the closet and he wants to marry a woman, Um, which I I confess I didn't see it, but I'm told it worked. Mm -hmm. I think actually, and then there was a BBC version by, uh, I think Stephen Moffat that did the same thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it totally tracks. I think it makes sense. I think it loses, there is a, I I almost don't know what to make of it either, but I want to, the reason that I'm resistant to that idea has to do with the thing that you said that we didn't totally drill down into about the interchangeability mm-hmm. yeah. of the fact that like, if they aren't something, an, an essential part of the like algorithm of this play is that they can't, they, all of the pairs do have to sort of be able to shift in any direction in a certain kind of way. And like, it's a little bit at cross purpose. It, like there's, a, there's an anarchy at work that's already really delicate. And if you fuck with it by changing the symmetry, hmm. you are actually putting your finger on the scale in a really particular kind of way. You know what I mean? And not that it doesn't work, but it's dangerous to do that with Shakespeare plays that are built symmetrically. Yeah. I mean, I also think that having just had this conversation, we've had it obviously yeah. d- takes away the queerness of a potential yeah. Helena and Hermia relationship. And yes, displaces that somewhere else which again if you're like well I don't care I'd rather have the sort of more explicit version than the more poetic one that's fine I get that impulse as well um but yeah I mean I think that there's yeah there's something to again the sense of waking from a dream that Mm -hmm. is the character's experience of all of this having happened that relies on yeah the interchangeability the sense that like who even are you what did those things you did even mean Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's, yeah, but I do think it is, I I'm glad you brought it up because I think mm-hmm. it's really, uh, it's a key element of that. And it is one of the key ways that contemporary productions kind of, again, are trying yeah. to, they're like, there's something queer here. We can find yeah, it. Yeah. Something yeah. about Helena feels gay. Yeah. Maybe if she was a man. Right, right, right. And I feel like, I don't think it's a wrong impulse, but I think it has to do with not listening hard enough to what the play is already doing. Yeah. And like you said, if you want to choose the more obvious version, that's okay. There is also a Demetrius thing that a lot of people, I will never forget the first time I heard somebody say this probably in college about, you know, again, the super dark Shakespeare comedy, like, you know, thing (laughs) that people are also desperately compelled to do of like, you know, his restitution with Helena at the end isn't real. He's still on the fairy drugs. Everybody else has been restored except him. He doesn't know what he's doing, so it doesn't count. I understand. I have to, I have to personally confess that I understand that reading. It deeply bores me. I, I think that if you can, it's a little bit how I feel about when people are, you know, the thing that we desperately hate about people um, saying, you know, the whole Romeo and Juliet are just hormonal teenagers argument of kind of like, listen, there are principles at work in these freaking plays that if you can't get on board with. And for me, one of those things is like woods magic, fairy magic ultimately is about like people get the magic that they need. 
people get the journey that they're supposed to have to end up where they're supposed to be. And like, you know, I think that I, I personally am more invested in a way of trying to find, trying to find a sort of harmonic conclusion for Demetrius that has to do with him coming back to his natural self rather than further away from it. But, um, yeah, well, I think that, you know, much like the reason that people who say that about Romeo and Juliet are wrong is in the poetry, yeah. the language that Demetrius uses is exactly the same language of waking from a dream that Bottom yes. uses and that the other characters use. So I think yes. it's like very clearly telegraphed by the text of the play that mm-hmm. the he has uh, both awakened from the experience yeah. that he had the night before where he was being crazy and in love with mm-hmm. Helena and also not speaking to her in the way he subsequently speaks to her. Like that manic energy is gone. Mm-hmm. 100%. And yet the thing that he has awakened to is yeah. as with everybody else, a restoration to a harmonious heterosexuality that now they can have a nice wedding. They can have a play at the wedding. And then at the end, Oberon and Titania, rather than fighting over her love child with her lesbian lover mm-hmm. can come and bless all the marriages and make sure yes. that everybody ends up alone in the proper marriage bed to have children. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. I don't know if you um, know more about this than I do. You probably do. I had a conversation with the dramaturg, um, you know, early when I was working on it about how there's some sort of scholarly speculation that this play uh, in its entirety, in its own self was sort of written as a wedding gift. Yes. And I think it makes total sense because obviously when we get to the freaking play within a play, which we will in a minute, the um, this play ends with a play performed as a wedding gift. And I think it makes so much more sort of meta sense if you realize that this entire the whole play of A Midsummer Night's Dream is performed as a wedding gift. That to me makes a ton of sense, which is why it's all about we got to restore to the proper harmonious marriage bed so that continuance and children and um, harmony in nature can be restored. Yeah, exactly. I I confess I don't have the details to hand of whose it was, but I have heard that as well. And I think you can see it in the structure. It feels like an indoor play. It's incredibly long scenes (laughs) and like kind of acts that have like two scenes in them and uh, some other stuff about it. Um, Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's exactly it. And then I, and I think uh, that, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It, it is striking that we are in act four and the plot is resolved and now there's act five. Yeah, it's um, very striking. But again, makes sense when you're like, okay, yeah, it's 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 time for the play within a play. It's time for the sort of celebratory comic ending. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Which is a little bit, a little bit beside the point, a little bit meta mm-hmm. and happening for reasons that are not to do with the plot. Totally, totally. And you know, it's such a funny thing because obviously we've all seen productions of this where it's sort of, you know, it, it could be soaring and then hit the play within a play and then completely falter if it's not funny enough because obviously the text is bananas. I mean, it's so dumb. Yeah. But like, but we've all seen be- it so many times at this point that it's hard. People try it to do hard. too much. But yeah, no, exactly. It's like you really, it is, it is what I feel like one of the hardest. It's hard to reinvent. Act. Vibes. Well, because it's just like it has to be so funny. There's no other redeeming Dude. quality, unlike the lovers' fight, as we've been discussing, where it's like, hey, there's this underbelly of pathos. It's like, no, yeah. it just simply must be the funniest thing you've ever seen. That it is the brief. Be. It has to be, or it doesn't work. And it honestly, you know, um, 
I, I had never directed this play before I did it last summer and I have never had, like, I have, I have directed plays that I've seen lots and lots of times before, but never have I felt the same sort of like, you know, um, the same kind of pressure. Uh, well, and just like, like you're sort of sidling up to it. You, you know, you feel like a sort of Texas gunslinger. There's sort of a thing where you're like, what, you know, you're like, all right, play within a play we've got to fight this out. It's me or you, baby. Like, it's like, it's because everybody has seen it a hundred thousand times and never have I felt the, um, the pressure of, because the first thing you have to do is be able to imagine newly, you have to be able to let images happen in your brain. And I've never had a harder time, not just seeing images I've already seen. Mm, Yeah. You know what I mean? That makes sense. it's interesting, but the, like thematically, like you said, the play is over by the end of Act Four. Like the lovers are restored to the proper places, uh, Titania and Oberon, and therefore Hippolyta and Theseus are also restored. Like and even Bottom has already had his kind of like I've awakened. Mm-hmm. Like what's this crazy experience that I had? Speech. Like y- even yeah. he is resolved prior yeah. to the play within one hundred percent. Well, and he's restored to his group of actors and their yeah. big crisis of like, are we going to get to do our play? Of course, is you know. And so now it's just like off to the races, the big finale. And I don't know how you feel about this, but this was the only way I could make sense of it. And like thematically how we might be able to tie this into anything of like, I think the only world in which the play within a play can be both super, super funny and also somehow feel like a pyrotechnic encapsulation of the whole rest of the play is if the whole play has been in some way about the act of making theater. You know, like, you know what I mean? That was yeah. the only way, it was the only way that I could make sense of it. Yeah, if, if I think that like, works. I don't, yeah, right? I mean, I like, I, I don't mean to sound dismissive. I'm just like, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, it's a I way of doing it. Yeah, it was, it was the only way, it was the only way that it could make sense for me of just like, if there's a, cause like, like you were saying, it's, it's a, not only are we restored to resolution by the end of act four, like we're back where we started like symmetrically, you know, we're, we, yeah. we've gone on a, on a perfect circle and now there's this extra thing. And I don't know, for me, it, 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 that was the only sense I could make of it, of just the fact that like, if it's sort of a play about theater making, then you get to have a big finish that celebrates theater making. Yeah. And you know? as we know, theater is always gay. Theater is always gay. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's the point um maybe it is been so many extremes about theater and theater is always gay yeah I feel like there should be more that we have that we that we, do you have anything else about act five I mean no not really I think as we've discussed like it does it is just this sort of appended absurdity <laughs> it is very funny but to me does not contribute I mean where it comes back into me is mm. this idea of the restoration of um, Oberon and Titania as yeah. now emblems of harmonious heterosexuality again. Again, they come in and they bless the marriages, they bless the marriage beds. Right. There's going right. to be children, there's going to be continuity, all of the sort of disruptions of nature that we were threatened with at the beginning yeah. of the play yes. have been swept mm-hmm. away. And the same mm-hmm. characters that embody that now are embodying harmony. And we're all exactly as we should be. And yet also all gay. <laughs> Yet also complicatedly, maybe still all gay. Maybe still all gay. 
So here at the end of each episode, live on air, while Emma makes a panicked face, we choose what play we are going to talk about next week. Um, Did you have any thoughts? I literally somehow still forget we're going to do this. I know. I can see it in your eyes. I see it in your eyes every time. Like it's not, that's not just something she says, guys. I literally forget every single week. Um, okay. Uh, what do I have you an think? Idea. I, I have, have an idea, have, but you're not going to like it. I have an idea too, but it's probably the same idea. Cause I, <laughs> I already, am not going to like it. Then you please go. <sighs> Two noble kinsmen. That actually wasn't it, but yeah, let's oh, do it. Wait, no, um, no, no, no. What was yours? What was you're going to hate mine more. Um, no, no, well, I was sort of thinking like, wow, we're sort of splashing around in these early comedies. Maybe we should do Taming of the Shrew. Can we bear it? Can Rock in a hard place it? times. I think we should do Two Noble Kinsmen. I think it's a really interesting play and I think it's going to be a really good follow-on from the ideas that we've been talking about. And Theseus is in it. Well, there you go. From a Theseus to a Theseus, finally, Two Noble Kinsmen. Two noble kinsmen okay while you catch up on that play in the intervening two weeks you can give us a follow give us a subscribe on whatever podcast purveying platform you choose you can find us on instagram yes you can at this shakespeare is gay or on twitter at this shakes is gay that's s-h-a-x um come yell at us for choosing another really obscure play and we'll see you soon okay, bye.